You're listening to the Local Futures Podcast. In this series, we explore a growing worldwide movement, the movement to shift away from corporate globalization and consumerism, and to strengthen local economies and place-based cultures instead. In this episode, Helena Norberg-Hodge talks to Ian McGilchrist. Ian is a one-of-a-kind thinker, an Oxford literary scholar, as well as a doctor in psychiatry and neuroscience. His groundbreaking work, The Master and His Emissary, investigates the divided structure of the brain, the apparent historical battle for dominance between left and right hemispheres, and the profound ramifications of left hemisphere dominance for Western civilization and humanity as a whole. For those who are new to the concept, the key point that Ian expounds in his work is that the left hemisphere sees the world as something rather lifeless, to be grasped, categorized, dissected, and used, while the right hemisphere is more closely in touch with experiential and sensory knowledge, and thereby delivers to us the more complex and demonstrably more accurate bigger picture of a dynamic, living, and inextricably interconnected universe. Ian's latest publication, the two-volume work The Matter With Things, builds on his previous work to sustain an in-depth critique of reductive materialism and to invite a thorough rethink of humanity's place in the world. In this conversation, Ian and Helena employ a big-picture lens to level critiques against artificial intelligence, corporate globalization, and the profit orientation of science and academia. They ask some hard questions about how things might change, through collapse, through movement building, through grassroots action, or through a combination of these. And they also articulate insights into who we are as human beings and what a fulfilling life really entails. We hope you thoroughly enjoy this unique conversation. So Ian, I'm so happy to be talking to you again. And I was absolutely shocked when I realized, you know, it's been more than two years since we spoke and I thought yeah can you believe it I it doesn't feel that way but it is since no no so anyway yeah time is just running away it's true but it's lovely to be be with you again even if in this slightly strange way me on an island off the northwest coast of Scotland you on the east coast of Australia <laughs> but it's great that this is one of yes, the one yes. of the great things about technology is that we can do this yeah yeah and it is something that we should be using these technologies for it might be um, worthwhile to start talking about the sort of world situation and how we're feeling about it because what I'm seeing mm. is that almost everyone today as opposed to a few years ago when we spoke there is a sense mm. of there's a sense we hear more and more about extinction um, mm. I'd love to hear what your sort of sense is now what's what's happening and how you see yes. what's going on well, yes, I don't, I don't want to be too, too gloomy, but, <laughs> but uh, yes, the environmental situation is acceleratingly bad, it seems to me, with uh, freak weather events, uh, accelerating extinction of species, the melting of the ice caps, apparently polar bears almost having lost their, their habitat. 
for example, just one of many, many, many things. But it, there are so many elements really in this picture. Um, over the last few years since we talked, there are other things that have been on my mind as though that wasn't enough. Um, one of them is the, um, I feel our civilization is committing suicide. I think there's um, extraordinary forces at work undermining uh, the good things that we have built up. Uh, there may be bad things, of course. Uh, I'm a critic of the West. Um, that was one of the themes of, of my work. But I'm also a great admirer of what we've achieved in the West, um, a degree of, of freedom, a degree of fairness, a degree of tolerance, a degree of um, freedom from dogma, really, that, that is unusual. And yet now I find all this being reversed, that dogma has come back, that people are... Um, I think of Yeats's words, the best lack all conviction and the worst are filled with a passionate intensity. And that seems to me a description of what's going on in society, particularly in Britain and America, um, with appalling things happening in universities, in schools, with education, um, and, and other, other things which I don't want to become <laughs> uh, too gloomy or too inflammatory, but there just seems to be an immense amount that seems to be acceleratingly worrying. And um, perhaps most topical for me is that um, uh, only a week or two ago, I was invited to give the opening address to the World Summit of AI in Amsterdam. And um, it's a topic I've never addressed actually before. And um, because it had to be 25 minutes precisely, I wrote it <laughs> um, rather than just speak off the cuff. But uh, it, it occurred to me in writing it how very much there is to be concerned about in the advances of AI. I mean, obviously, there are things that AI can do for us if it remains firmly under our control. But once it starts dictating to humans, uh, and I'm not talking about a sort of science fiction world in which machines have literally taken over in some way. I'm talking about now, you know, that already machines uh, are um, part of our daily life. We have to interact with them to get almost anything done these days. It takes many times longer and is much more frustrating than having communion with a genuine human being. But that's what we're faced with now. You know, and I asked a lot of questions. What happens when, you know, to human fulfillment, when contact with other human beings is taken out of our lives and replaced by machines? What happens to the, those who are rendered unemployed thereby? Um, wh what happens to our skills when we, we have outsourced them to machines to such a large extent already that if for one of a number of reasons we were no longer able to depend on machines, say we, we ran out of what we call resources or, or there was um, a war as there is in, in, in Ukraine or, or, or simply um, we found that we couldn't provide this level of highly um, costly energy input all across the planet. What happens if we haven't got those machines? How resourceful will we be? What skills will we have compared with our parents and grandparents? 
um, what happens when our dignity, our privacy, and everything is spied upon by machines? Can we avoid actually what's happening in China right now with its utterly appalling social credit system, the most tyrannical totalitarianism in the world? How can we break away from this? So these are all things to be worried about. I hope <laughs> you did ask me. <laughs> I I would. For me, it is the biggest worry. And for me, it is also very clear what the effects are on people. Uh, we can see mm. the, the, the effect, particularly on young men, of spending their life behind the screen. We see the link to mm. violence. We see the link to, to all kinds of, of very, very serious um, problems. Mm. You know, sort of mm. breakdown of, of social cohesion. We see... You know, that, yes, remember yes. that film, The Social Dilemma, which is also saying that the algorithms in the social mm. media know that polarization is lucrative. So we already have mm. the algorithms working to polarize and and in, incite prejudice and, and even violence. And, and, and people also know that their communication on the web is so much more violent then it mm. would be face to face mm. normally. And that's exactly. further inciting um, divisiveness, fear, and mm. prejudice. So I think for me, you know, what we're facing now is this very urgent choice between do we want to go down the techno-economic path that's being pushed on us, or do we want to choose a path to reconnect with life? And to me, it seems that it is really archetypically, do we want to continue allowing the left brain to be more and more dominant? Or do we want to allow and, and nurture the, the right brain's uh, view of, of, of reality and encourage this restoration of balance in, in our minds? I mean, would you do you think that sounds too simplistic when I say that? But that's certainly for me. How it seems? No, I, I don't think it's simplistic, and um, I think the worry is that what AI does is massively speed up the spread of left hemisphere sort of thinking into our our lives, and and helps us mistake what a human being is and what a life is for. It's not just for exercising power. It's not just for getting stuff. It's not just for having pleasure. It's about many other nobler aims. And uh, I said, quite frankly, the idea of cyborgs, of um, you know, um, hybridizing human beings with machines is, is an evil aim. I, I don't say the people who are doing it are necessarily evil. They may just be lacking imagination, but it is an evil end. I love that you make that distinction. I, I I totally agree. It's an evil system, and the plans yes. are evil, and they have exactly that that impact of 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 evil in the mm. sense of divisiveness, separation, and no. conflict. And as you say, most of the of the active players in this, whether it's the scientists developing the technologies, whether it's the, the military, which is actively promoting this, most of the individuals 
to my mind, are not evil because they're really not aware of what they're doing. And that's partly because yeah. of left brain training and this blindness, as you have also pointed out, we've become more and more immersed in the world, I was going to say, of our own creation. But I actually think we need to say, really, uh, it's a world that has been created by this relationship between money and other forms of technology, which have supported mm this techno-economic path and you know which has led to giant unaccountable corporations having so much influence and so much power yes i think so um and i, I what, what struck me very much is um that people are not aware of the moral importance of their choices in these worlds uh, so Every choice made by Amazon, by Google, um, and so on, has impact on human life. And such decisions are inevitably moral. They have moral uh, consequences. And a machine, an algorithm, cannot take that into account. And no, um, a utilitarian calculation is not the same as morality, something I've written about uh, forcefully in The Matter With Things. And another thing I think that's relevant here is that you mentioned um, the left hemisphere in relation to what you were describing. And you said um, that things that were um, under threat, things you, some of the things you mentioned were life itself, vitality, animacy, um, which I feel very strongly. Also the body and nature, the war on nature, the war on the body um, as presenting any kind of limits to our fantasies. So we should, according to this ridiculous uh, creed, we should be able to um, do exactly what we want um, and have no limits and no impositions imposed by our corporeal existence. I mean, the main one being death, but there are many others. And the fight against nature, the fight against life, the fight against acceptance of, of um, the the importance of limitation that you know it's out of these limits that our fulfillments actually come paradoxically not out of um ever greater um choices i mean it, there's enormous literature on this that these these choices don't make people happier which is not an argument for for tyranny but it's an argument that it, you won't make people happier but by just giving them more and more and more choices Yes, but also. But you see, the left hemisphere. Sorry, can I just say this? The left hemisphere is the one that doesn't understand context. It doesn't really understand nature except as utility, because its one value is utility. So it sees nature as a heap of resources. But nature is so, so much more than that. We are also not brains in vats, we are embodied beings, which a computer never can be. And this embodiment and this relationship with the natural world and with the spiritual realm are so important. Uh, in the Masters Hemisphere, I, I, I bring forward the evidence which I really wasn't aware with until I was gathering it for that book. I didn't know what I would find, but it is absolutely astonishing that uh, we're belonging to a social group that is cohesive, our proximity to the natural world, and our uh, uh, um, relationship or otherwise with the spiritual realm are the three greatest, most powerful determinants of human happiness 
of human mental health and of human physical health. It is remarkable. And these are all things we are now jettisoning, doing away with, and think in our foolishness that we know it all. And of course, it's a sign of knowing very little that you think you know it all. Well, you see, you know, you know that what you're laying out is precisely why we promote what we call localization, which is yes. about that reconnection to others, to the living world, and how that in turn, that deeper connection helps us reconnect in, you know, left between right brain, heart, mind and heart and gut, becoming more embodied, mm -hmm. becoming more whole, is a consequence of those deeper ongoing experiences of connection, connection to others and connection to nature. And so I'm so thrilled to have you as an ally in this localization movement. It's so incredibly important to have your voice in this. And I do think that particularly with people of your authority and your standing, I hope you had a big impact on that AI conference did you? Did you get some people perhaps listening to I, our I, questions? I, I, I definitely did, yes. I mean, I, I know that uh, there were people who thought that I was unnecessarily negative or gloomy about it, but uh, there were plenty of people who came up to me afterwards and asked if they could have a copy of my speech and uh, if they could invite me to talk and that it was you know, important. And, and I've since heard further feedback. So, and it's gone up on the web, actually. Um, and it's only been up a couple of days, but it's, it's, it's attracting quite a lot of interest. So, yes, I, I, think, I think there is um, a need for, for people to speak out. Um, one of the things that <clears throat> surprises me is the the way in which we're willing to stand by while these things happen, if you know what I mean. Yes. Um, and I, I don't think that it's, like you, I, I'm reluctant to believe that there are cabals of psychopaths organizing this. I, mean, I wouldn't put it um, out of possibility that there may be uh, groups of pretty um, uh, awful <laughs> people with, with the wrong priorities who are getting together to enhance their their influence and their money simply uh, at the expense of of the rest of us but i think it's more a matter of not seeing what's happening exactly. and i remember i had i had a very good relationship with a wonderful woman who um who, who when i was young and i was learning german <clears throat> i was sent to stay with the family and the mother of the family had been in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And we talked a lot, although she was uh, not Jewish at all. But um, we, 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 talked, we talked about um, that whole era and so on. And she said it was not that people were bad so much as aus bloßer Dummheit, out of sheer stupidity, that people went along with it. Yes. And there's a third, there's another parallel from a completely different era. Um, I found a letter home from the British ambassador to the Netherlands or the Low Countries or whatever they were in those days, at the time of the Reformation. And he, he wrote long letters describing what he saw. And he said there was an organized band of mainly young people who went 
from church to church with sledgehammers, methodically destroying the statues, breaking the stone glass, setting fire to old manuscripts, generally causing havoc. And most of the population were standing outside their houses, watching them go through the streets, but they never said a word. They just looked on in amazement. And this phenomenon, rather like what my friend Evelina said about Germany and the Hitler site, um, it sort of seems to me to have a bit of a relevance to what we're experiencing now. <clears throat> well, um, entitled and narcissistic people who believe that they alone are right are going around destroying parts of our civilization, left, right, and center. And while we're standing by while things are happening to the planet, and um, we're standing by and even encouraging AI in the view that this can only be good for us. I mean, quite how you get it back in the bottle is, is another. I mean, once the genie's out of the bottle, what do you do? Well, again, you know, I don't agree with that genie in the bottle uh, theory in the sense that I see the genie in the bottle being nature herself and the longing that I see developing, again, having worked both in the so-called third world and Western industrialized world for all these years, what I've seen is that there's quite a clear pattern that people who have ended up in the center of the urban high-rise, rather deadly existence, where sometimes you know you would barely have a living plant in your surroundings, you you might have plastic plants inside, you have windows that don't open, artificial light. What I'm seeing is that it gives rise to a cultural turning towards nature. And I've seen it, I'm seeing people coming out of Mumbai and, and Delhi, I'm seeing, you know, across the mm. world, there is, we are, after all, human, we evolved deeply connected to life and the alienation that that extreme distance that the system has been imposing now does engender this thirst for connection and you see it then above all you know with the more privileged people now even developing an interest in farming and you see a lot of people from the it industry wanting their children nowhere near these evil toys evil toys and so i i do see that the the you know ultimately life life will prevail we we are human and will develop a thirst my big worry is what's going to happen in the next 20 years or so because i think the huge steps that are being taken and the propaganda for ai which i'm seeing everywhere and it includes that i was asked to speak um after a film on meditation and i you know i'm in favor of it and i was it was a fundraiser actually for flood victims here about four or five months ago and to my horror in this film we have a kindly looking american scientist woman talking about the about the virtues of robots of ai and about their ability to listen to other people with a type of unconditional compassion. Whereas, you know, we humans we always carry judgment. And then <laughs> here we get to see Sophia, the robot, teaching people how to meditate. 
And I was surrounded by people there who value meditation, who have ecological values, community values, and they were not. Uh, so when I then spoke out against that warning very strongly about, uh, about this, other people on the panel said, well, I'm not going to be, you know, deciding for other people. I think people should have a choice. And I think this is, again, one of these major issues that we need to be discussing more clearly, more head on. Because as you know, already now, if you and I would prefer to talk to a human being when we do our banking or when we arrange our travel arrangements, we do not have a choice. We're moving towards techno-economic structures that um, some of my colleagues in the past were talking about distinguishing between mega technological systems or mega technologies, which often appear as very small, very friendly, handheld friends like the mobile phone and so on. But they're actually part of these enormous structures that are encircling us. And so I think, yeah, looking at what what choices we actually have and looking at the way our taxes are subsidizing the development of these tools. But in the, and, and then they also turn around and support the wealth creation of, of the, the giant corporations that have been involved in the research. You know, we've got this PPP relationship, public-private partnerships between our governments and giant global corporations that we need to look at. You've probably heard me go on about that, you know, and the, the craziness that that our governments are signing in black and white in these trade treaties that we won't do anything that might reduce your profit-making potential. Now, that makes a complete joke of democracy, utter total joke oh. of democracy. And because of this insanity now of the media being so enclosed, these truths are not getting out. I'm convinced that even the most, um, you know, the, those who are absolutely convinced about, as it were, capitalism and, you know, been, you know, following sort of neoliberal thinking would not agree with the idea that mm. monopolies can order our governments and, and essentially pressure governments, you know, they're pressuring governments to impose more regulations on all of us individuals and on every business that belongs to a place, localized business of any kind, whether the small bakery in the neighborhood up to the national industry that is still belonging, as it were, to a nation state that has not yet taken on the, the the form of a multinational mobile giant. And those giants, you know, the biggest of all, whether in finance or in other industries, are essentially running the world. Yes, I think largely that's right. And uh, you say, uh, I've heard you talk about this. Uh, I think you can't say it often enough. I think it's it's extremely important. The whole system of modernity, which has systematically encouraged the left brain approach and dominance has been linked to continued urbanization, which in, in turn has been linked to globalization. So that bigger picture now, with that in mind, we need to be shifting in the opposite direction, a genuine ruralization and a genuine localization, which is, you know, 
virtually impossible to get in the media, virtually impossible to get, uh, you know, um, these days mm. in academia to mm. hear voices for that. Uh, there's a wonderful book which I was allowed to read in the run-up to the publication, well, in time for me to incorporate some of what it had to say into my writing, uh, called Everything Flows, which of course is what Heraclitus is famous for having said, um, or reportedly having said. Um, but it's a, it's a compilation of works by uh, biologists, chemists, and philosophers of science, effectively saying that the mechanical model is completely inadequate for dealing with life. So I think the days of, um, you know, we're lumbering robots carrying out the, the diktats of our genes or whatever it is that uh, uh, Dawkins famously said. I think that, that very few people now think like that, I think. Yeah. I also wanted to say to you that I didn't realize that you studied German. I didn't remember that. And I wanted to tell you that when I went to study German as a young woman and went to, to university in Germany, I was so enthralled to encounter Goethe and uh, mm. what I later came to see as more holistic, more process-oriented thinking in the German-speaking world. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And um, it, it, it's, it's impossible to... to express how much that I owe to people like Goethe and Schelling and Hegel and Heidegger <laughs> and Schiele uh, and, and so many uh, German philosophers. Um, it's interesting that, of course, romanticism, which is a much more organic way of thinking and is not just some it's such a shame that the word is associated in our minds with a sort of dreamy kind of maybe even fantasy. But in fact, it's the exercise of the imagination, which, as Wordsworth and Coleridge uh, continually pointed out, is completely distinct from fantasy. Fantasy turns you away from reality. Imagination helps you enter for the first time into the reality. And th that movement is, of course, it, it, um, in origin, German and, and English, I mean, about the same time. But I see Germany as being the big driver of Romanticism. And the period that followed the sort of late 18th and first few decades of the 19th century was in philosophy the most sophisticated period um, until some of the modern phenomenological philosophers in the history of philosophy. And it's a shame that it's um, the word romanticism um, puts people uh, in, in mind that, you know, probably it, it's just a fantasy, but it isn't. It's extremely important. And I find that... Go on. No, isn't it also in a way archetypically again? I mean, the Enlightenment versus Romanticism, wasn't it again about the left brain gaining dominance and just the mechanistic worldview, the, the view that wanted to manipulate and and uh, simplify gaining dominance? Yes, I, I, I want to say, though, that I have... Um, I have admiration for the Enlightenment. I mean, it brought a lot of very necessary things. And and when I say that there's much that the West can be proud of, 
some of that comes directly from the Enlightenment. And if I'd been living at the time of the Enlightenment, I'm sure I would have been an Enlightenment philosopher. But it's what's happened to that way of thinking since. And gosh, if only people would understand that more and more of something is not necessarily better, that a certain way of thinking at a certain time in a certain context brings good. But that doesn't mean that just pushing it and pushing it and pushing it is going to make things better. This is the, the, the thought crime that is now surrounding us, is the idea that something that served a purpose for a while needs to be pushed and pushed and pushed. And that the more you push it, the further you will get away from whatever it is that you dislike. But actually, you will find yourself meeting precisely what you didn't want to, to find. So in the push for freedom, which the Enlightenment was, we find tyranny as the end point. The belief that we can control everything means that in the end we try to, and we believe we can, and we know all the answers. And it ends up literally in tyranny. So a movement that was said to bring political freedom is now what has given birth to AI and is taking away our freedom. And that, it's as simple as that. People need to wake up. We really need to have a big public discussion about what AI is able to do. That my problem with it is, you say, well, once the gene is out of the bottle, you're not that um, pessimistic, and I'm delighted, and uh, um, I'd love to feel the same. But what I feel is that once you have given power to people, you can't take it away from them. You know, we can't stop people knowing what they know through AI and having what they've developed through AI. And although many of those people's intentions may be very good, it's only a matter of time before they're put in service to somebody whose intentions are not good. Yeah. And so you get the situation in China. And you said, uh, and I felt rather guilty when you said that we mustn't demonize a particular country. I'd like to say that all my life, I particularly admired China and Japan, actually, from, from the word go, when I learned about their history, their philosophy. And at one stage, it was either I was going to study medicine or I was going to study Chinese. But I think that in no two ways about it, what we're seeing in China now is appalling. And, you know, we shouldn't mince words about this. And China should become an outcast in the world until it mends its ways. But as long as it is a technocratic dictatorship, then we need to be saying this. We need to be speaking truth to power. You know, and that poor, poor young man who, I mean, what an act of self-sacrifice, knowing he was going to be tortured and put to death. And there was no two ways about it. Speaking out, um, so-called bridge man, only a week or two ago, Gosh, what, what a world that is, you know, and when, when I think <laughs> the things that need addressing, that's one of them that needs addressing very fast. Yeah, although I must say, you know, again, from where, I'm, where I've been working and looking at what's happening, I see the really significant dichotomy between the local, the bottom-up, and the global. And I see mm. China, oh, of course. The of China was created essentially by Western corporations and banks. And I knew, mm. you know, I was there and saw the transformation, and, it was, and we literally had the head of Exxon traveling the country and saying, you know, it's, it, so it's Western corporations prying open 
the country mm. when they're in creating mm. this consumer monoculture and to create this dictatorship. And you know, I I I'm afraid that the the military in in the West and we've seen documents. They are literally in black and white writing about the plans to forge this to merge humans and technology. And so, from U.S. intelligence, from British and French, and it's in public. You know, it's not it's not being hidden because. Again, these people are not of evil intent, but they are they're following this, this fear-based path and and totally not questioning the fact that if we can do something, we must do something. But you see, I think when you talk about freedom and when you talk what's happening, this most of these changes have not been driven by the majority of people. The majority of citizens, the majority of consumers, as it were, have essentially been pressured to accept what's been created out of this really evil marriage between technologies, money being mm. one of the technologies. And the way that money now as a technology has been used and created and who has the right to create it, to circulate it, to decide how much is going to flow where, the speculation on the value of currencies around the world, all of this is happening in this sort of essentially invisible casino, which in 2008 suddenly caused a lot of damage for a lot of people. And it was very clear to the entire world that we need to have some kind of regulations in this casino, which is playing havoc with people's lives. But mm. nothing was done. Instead, we were told, no, no, too big to fail, because governments were already so in bed with and so dependent on those corporations. But so I've, I also want to say more about what I said about the genie in the bottle. I agree that particularly now with AI, we're talking about a technology that is, is serving this globalized structure and, and suits, you know, dictators as what we're seeing in effect in China. I mean, I spoke at the Institute for Social Sciences in Beijing in 2006, and the head of the Institute for Social Sciences at that time told me that in the Central Committee there was a split. There were about half saying, no, no, we can't continue going in this direction. You know, the, and the direction was, of course, fundamentally urbanizing as is part of this techno-economic globalizing direction. And there were others saying, no, no, it's, we're destroying society, we're destroying the natural world. And there was a battle, and he, anyway, you know, it's pretty clear who's won now. But at the same time, literally just the other day, I was on a call with translators of our work. And so there were 15 of them from around the world, and one of them from China. And she was talking about this growth of eco-villages in China. And, you know, and there's been a, a a rural ruralization movement um, in China that has been headed by a professor of agriculture. I'm not. I don't think those those bottom up movements and those counter movements are in any way strong enough at this stage, as they aren't really anywhere. But they are. They do exist still in China, 
And uh, so I'm, you know, what I'm so hoping for is that deeper dialogue between countries and where we can connect those who still have those deeper connections to nature, who understand the vital importance of community. And, you know, there in China, I see, of course, and, and in Japan, much more of a memory of the importance of intergenerational community, much greater respect for grandparents, um, and uh, yeah, a, a memory that is often missing in certainly in America and Australia, a little bit more in England there still. So I think, yeah, I think we we really need to look look at that difference between what's going on as it were from the top down with global business, global banking, now so uh, forcefully um, shaping government policy. And it really, you know, the theater of left and right, uh, just we're not allowed to discuss what's actually going on. Does that sound too, what do you think about what I'm saying? That <laughs> it sounds too extreme. No, I mean, first of all, I'd like to say that um, I, I never intended to, to say that, um, in fact, I thought I'd said that I particularly admired Chinese culture. So I know that the mass of people in China um, don't don't really want to be in in a dictatorship. But they are, and really, what I was saying is that it takes only a small group of people who have determination to seize power, and AI will help them. So, but um, I am delighted to hear that there are movements that run towards localization and ruralization, because of course that's a a name that I completely endorse. But I think it's it's hard to, I mean, when I hear you saying all the things that I agree with about um, what is effectively capitalism, I, I immediately ask myself, so what alternative to capitalism do you want? Well, of course, what I would like is, uh, is but how do we get there from, from here? Uh, what I would like is to see a return to smaller communities where people know one another, live close to the land, share common beliefs, um, share their lives, um, share their worship. This is a, a stable way in which to to have um, a, a civilization or a society at any rate. But uh, the question is, how do we get there from here? And I think that we're so in love with our comforts, and I don't ex exempt myself at all here. I mean, am, am I prepared to, at this stage in my life, to, to to lead a kind of life I'd need a great deal of toughness and youth and resilience to be able to lead? No, not really. So um, who is willing to take enormous steps backwards technologically in order to recover um, what I think, as you think, the important relationships. I, my own view is that the current system won't be um, rejected, as it were, by, by, by people, but will be simply proved impossible. It, it, will, it will start to break down. When it starts to break down, because, as I've said, we're so dependent on it, it will be a disaster. And, and even if it's just cutting which is now rather topical, cutting um, internet cables under the sea. I, I discovered the other day that apparently a quarter of all the world's internet traffic 
and um, goes for a hub off the coast of Cornwall. <laughs> but uh, it, it, if it's easy to cut it, cut it, all kinds of things will happen. You won't be able to get any money out of your bank. Um, no transactions, in fact, that now are almost entirely electronic will be able to take place. Um, there will be no possibility for transport of, of fuel. We will be suddenly stuck as though in an apocalyptic situation, the whole system has broken down. And, and I think that when it breaks down and we find that we can't repair it, an enormous number of people will die. It, it, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing to say. But yeah. out of that, out of that crucible may come groups of resilient, intelligent, imaginative people who are willing to work hard and to create community. And there will be, once again, a finding, willy-nilly, really, of what is important in life. But it, as long as we are comfortable and as long as the system is ticking over, however, precariously, I can't see things taking a huge step forward. I, I may be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. No, well, I mean, I think the, for me, the difference between what you're saying and what I'm saying is that I believe that people simply do not realize that their governments are now choosing to make them poorer to make them run faster and faster just to pay the rent, just to mm. now to have a bit of energy to heat their yes. home. And this has been going on for quite a while. I've worked with economists in the 90s, both in America and in England, who documented the fact that as GDP was going up, people were getting poorer. The vast majority were getting poorer. The middle class was getting poorer. So this truth that growth is making the vast majority poorer and the truth that is making a smaller and smaller number of people mega rich in this obscene mm. way, which has mm. been you know, dramatically increasing in every single country, including China, including Sweden. So I, for me, the tragedy is that we are not allowed to see the bigger picture what's actually happening in the name of we we're told that this is all about providing us with our comforts. Now we need to move away from agriculture because it's so destructive. And if to feed the world, we now need to have fermented bacteria instead of farming. We're getting essentially lie upon lie upon lie, very much along the lines of what you're describing when you talk about the left brain being able to dominate and to cut out the bits that don't fit and life doesn't fit. Mm. So now as we move forward, we have an extreme case of this, a lie, a lie about what progress is giving us. And now this is the lie about what AI is going to do to make sure that, that the robots are more compassionate than we are, that they'll be more intelligent than we are. I believe that right now, the majority of people say, yeah, absolutely. I don't want to keep subsidizing global monopolies. I don't want the casino to be determining what our country does and doesn't do. I don't want to import and export the same food and to have our government subsidize that infrastructure. No, let's shift the subsidies, let's shift regulations, and let's start ensuring that we come back to understanding that the real economy is the water and the soil, the living earth, 
and that smaller businesses for most of our basic needs will be able to deliver much better. And what we're doing is operating according to a map, which is false, which is wrong, which is shallow, and which lies about what <clears throat> agriculture has meant through the ages. It doesn't acknowledge that there were farms that developed systems over thousands of years that were productive. We only get to hear that agriculture has always been destructive. You know, so we're just mm. getting lie after lie after lie supporting mm. continuing in this. So if so well, what do you say to that? <laughs> well, <laughs> Well, yes, I, I, I and uh, I do mention this a bit in in the matter of things that these um, farming only began to be what it is now exploitative, both of the land and of the workers, at the time in the eighteenth century when people basically discovered greed, namely capitalism, that they didn't need to just grow all they needed for the local community, which is a very sane way. To, to work, but could grow far more and sell it and become rich. And then, of course, the workers were exploited to work as hard as they could for longer and longer hours. The medieval peasant wasn't this ground-down figure that um, it, it, uh, it, it's a myth which suits us to believe that this was the way things were. I was astonished in, in, in writing it to read the work of Juliette Shaw, um, who, who pointed out that, amongst other things, in the Ancien Régime, prior to um, the French Revolution, um, the, the, the French uh, agricultural labourer was guaranteed 180 days a year holiday, including Sundays, uh, that is. But that's 180 days out of 365. But once things really take off with capitalism, then it's all about some people getting very rich by, as you say, the casino, and everyone else being impoverished and, and more and more stretched. I mean, one of the things that is very visible at the moment is... Um, I just mention it because it's something we've all all experienced, is that something that a few years ago could be done with a five-minute phone call to a person now can take several hours on the internet while you're sent round Escher-like loops out of which it's impossible to break. And, and when you finally find you can't do what you want to do, it goes, oops, something went wrong. <laughs> and then... Um, then you have to sort of sit on the phone for literally usually an hour to talk to some underpaid person in a foreign country who doesn't really understand what you're talking about and can't help. So in other words, lots and lots and lots of our time is being spent, our expensive time is being spent to save the bosses of these companies the cost of employing a few people and employing machines instead. So that's just, a, just an example. But my, my question is this. I, I think we, our hearts are in exactly the same place, but I have this problem, how do we get from where we are now to there? And you say, well, we could start doing more, I agree, uh, local, local development of agriculture and so on. But if any country really opted out of what you've called, I think quite aptly, the casino, um, and started to do things that in the short run were not advantageous uh, to the capitalist machine, that country would become a poor country overnight. Now, it, there's a kind of prisoner's dilemma problem here. Unless everybody does it, then those who do it are going to work, come off very much worse. And unfortunately, 
and and I, I hear you only mention the military in negative terms. I I I, I know why, but we we also need a military if we want to be a peaceable country and not overrun by tyrants. Um, so we need people who can push back against um, a monolithic state that is trying to crush a small nation, and we would be a small nation. So we need these things. How do we? It seems to me that there's um. There's a much better place we could get to, but to get to it, we'd have to go through a period of diminution, powerlessness, and poverty that no no one group of people can do on their own. We need everybody to do it, and that will never happen. Yeah, but you see, but, but Ian, I think that uh, again, what you we were talking about how we need that military to push back. What's happening is that the military is supporting this de facto empire of corporations and banks. Yes, I, I don't disagree. Well, okay, but, so but that, my, my point is, I, I accept that, but my point is, and perhaps you could say something about it, is how do we get, how do we get over this, this problem that I'm saying, that in order to get there, we'd have to lose our place in the world for a while? So... If you imagine, first of all, that what we're talking about is that the social and environmental movements wake up to the need for this shift and that they do so through international exchange and the international movement that I'm trying to build up would present to, to the world, and that means to potential leaders, the idea that they could break away by linking up with some other nations. And that for the sort of breakaway strategy that in theory could happen would be that several nations together decide, okay, we are gonna to start to support our real economy. We're gonna start supporting more production at home. We're gonna stop this incredible waste of energy and resources by importing and exporting the same thing to make some global corporations rich. So they're basically coming together to stand up against this monolithic empire of corporation. Now, if this were in any way publicized and so that you know on the world stage, people would know that this was going on, it would be very hard for I, you know, the Pentagon or someone, um, you know, to, to come in and just sort of bomb them to smithereens. In terms of real welfare, you see, in terms of real welfare, if you're talking about a fairly rapid shift, you're not talking about from one day to the next, we're now not going to import anything. We're talking about the actual shift in agriculture. Yeah, let's start growing some more food that we actually need. Let's start shifting our resources so that we now are going to be employing more people. Ian, we have this overabundant renewable energy of people, and people are being systematically yes. dumped. And why? Because we're allowing the metrics to be completely false. We're allowing a system to tell us that human beings are too expensive. Everywhere we go now, we are too expensive for ourselves. In everything we care about, we need more people. We need more eyes and ears that can listen to the specific context, the unique situation. The human being is what can allow for that genuine, authentic uniqueness of the living person you're dealing with, the living tree, the water, the soil. 
all of that requires more people to make up for the damage of stupid fossil fuel-based machinery previously, now the Green New Deal. We're dealing with a mad system now. But they're also talking about covering up the earth from the sun so that the sun won't be able to heat up the earth so we won't have global warming. You've got madmen, always specialized madmen in service to this idea that more technology is what's needed to solve our problem. So if there was sanity, if sanity could prevail, the actual steps that would need to be taken would be a lot easier to take than to continue down this mad direction. Yeah, but so how do we do it? To me, it's all about people seeing the unbelievable waste, stupidity, criminality, evil of the dominant direction, and seeing that if we change the I to a we, so we don't think how am I suddenly now going to not have any electricity, no heating, no imported anything. I'm just going to go local by myself. Ridiculous. What I am helping is for groups who I'm saying change the I to a we. And as a we, people are doing things. So they are starting to do what you said could happen after a crash. They are aware that things may be crashing. They see things are sort of crashing and they're starting to build that we. And by the way, in the floods here, everybody here knows that it was the community that responded first and best. And when later on the official government, later on the army came in, they were clumsy. They did some good things too. You know, they repaired some roads and so on. But, but the community response now, which also people are trying to build up and strengthen in the face of further emergencies. But, and there too, you know, with technology, if we had some common sense, we'd be saying right now, let's use these speedy communication tools for communication and particularly around climate and emergency situations. Let's ban the commercial use. I know it sounds very unrealistic, but it wouldn't be unrealistic if people had an idea how detrimental it is, how the average middle-class person is getting poorer and poorer, how the average CEO is running faster and faster to try to stay on top because when there's a merger, which is inevitable, then he wants to be on top. So he can't, you know, the speed, the speed is serving the left brain in this major, major way that is, and, and it's the fear. Yes. Um, you can imagine I, <laughs> I, I agree wholeheartedly with everything you said, uh, particularly with the, the concept of we rather than I. And you're absolutely right that people are beginning to act and we need to accelerate a process whereby governments act together. I hope that they can. I, I, I fear that the sort of voices that are saying the sort of things you and I know to be right will not be the elected parties because the elected parties um, are familiar to the electorate and you see how the Green Party has had a few successes, but it's nobody's quite sure what it would really be like to have a Green Party entirely deciding their their futures. So we need to we need to work towards this this happening. I'm a hundred percent with you, and I, I 
you know, you can imagine this was the drift of my talk to the AI uh, summit was we've forgotten what a human being is and what a human life is for. It's not for grabbing and for machines to help us grab more. It's, we want one another. We want the society of other human beings, the complexity of other human beings. This is how we are fulfilled. And in our closeness to a natural world that we're not just thinking of as a bunch of stuff that we can exploit. And, and the spiritual dimension. And none of this is possible with a machine. I mean, the laughable idea that it can be compassionate. You can't conceivably be compassionate. It can only mimic, however well, the sort of things that people do and say when they are being compassionate. But surely any idiot can see that that's not compassion. It's extraordinary what people will buy. They've been fed us all the story that we are machines, you see. This is the thing. It starts with this pernicious idea that we are machines, perhaps are the faulty ones when compared with robots. And the, the other side of this is that robots can be sentient beings, but they can't. And, and this is, you know, this is um, essential to what we're dealing with. We need to rehumanize the world. And already the humanities are being driven out of our education, as though learning philosophy, learning history, learning the literature, the music, the, the myths of a culture and of cultures is, is somehow unimportant because it doesn't deliver a buck at the end of the day. What is this in terms of, can I plug this into the machine and this person will know how to do a technical job? That they may well do, but what's important is that they will have a kind of intelligence and understanding, which was in the past the point of an education. Which is why, on the whole, you know, we didn't make such decisions when well, we, we've made a lot of short-term decisions, I'm afraid, but that's, I wonder how we will get away from that. That's one of the things I, I'm concerned about, how we get people to do things that have a long-term benefit, but at the moment may seem um, to have only a downside. Now, I think what you're saying is it doesn't have to be set up like that, and that we don't have to, you know, make life much harder for already struggling people in order to save the, the, the planet. I think that's an extremely important point. Oh, I'm so glad you think so. And absolutely, I'm saying that. In fact, if you look at the truth of what's happening, is that the current policies pursued by, I'm afraid, left, right, and even Greens, every step of the way, they're actually becoming poorer, and their poverty is most dramatic and frightening in terms of time poverty. The time poverty is very, very scary because it prevents people from having that moment to, to connect, to reflect, to, to step back and, and, and look at the, the bigger contours. And so they're just lost in running faster and faster, but it's also literally material poverty. And, and Juliet Schultz, mm. the economist I was, what I was mentioning earlier on when I talked about working with two economists, Julia Shaw was one and Richard Douthwaite was the other, who already in the 90s were pointing out that we're getting poorer. So we're talking about offering a path which would actually make you better off than you are now, better off. And at the same time saying that it's not going to be something that is a, a sudden uh, it's not like a boycott. It isn't a sudden ban on, on, on uh, you know, Coca-Cola, Monsanto are not going to be shut down overnight. 
but what we're <laughs> encouraging is a people's movement for economic change. And that's where we're not looking at the conventional political parties to do the job. We're looking at a movement from the bottom up that recognizes that we're only going to be looking at representatives that recognize that we have to take on this techno-economic juggernaut and shift direction. And maybe current politicians will choose to respond to that, but most of them probably won't. And I and I love your advice, Ian, because I often think, should I just forget about even talking about the potential for that bigger change? Should I only do what many people, I think, long for? Or, or I think many people have simply given up on the idea that the bigger system could change. So what we get now is a lot of interest from people who love the idea that they can do something at the local level. They often will show a film of ours or maybe another similar film that then will help them find a group of like-minded people. People are roughly at that same stage and they really want to contribute to change. They understand that things are fundamentally wrong and they want to explore mm. this other path that we're calling localization. And maybe, yes. I don't know, if you if you sometimes I think about talking about it as the economic economics of death versus the economics of life, uh, mm. sort of, do you think that would sound too extreme rather than global versus? No, I don't. I, no, I, I I think it's good because I think we are talking about life and death. And I will send you the speech I gave at the AI summit, oh. but I actually begin. Be, begin by quoting to be or not to be, because really this is the question, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, and, and many of the things you talk about, time poverty, I also talk about. Um, and I, I think you'll be surprised to, to hear that I think we need both um, lots of little local steps. It matters what each single individual does. Everybody plays a part. Nothing you do is too small to matter. Everything you do can be part of a greater change. And we need that and we need the, the bigger picture. We need people with vision to be listened to by governments and to say, well, maybe we do need a shift and not the one that is being put forward by the World Economic Forum. This is a, this is a, a group of people who do have colossal influence, but they're talking about pushing further in all the directions that we are so afraid of. Um, and I, I'm appalled when I hear Yuval Harari sort of um, saying more or less, this is the future, we don't have any freedom and we are basically going to be robots. I, uh, well, I simply can't subscribe to this at all. And it's very concerning. So yeah. I think those things, and I suppose the con contribution I feel I can make is by writing about the the underpinning of all this. We're talking about practical steps, politics, local movement, all of that, I agree. But also what needs to go with it, as I say, is, and this really is fundamental, it may sound like icing on the cake, but it's not, it's the bedrock, it's the actual foundation of any change for the better, is that we change how we think and feel about humans, about the world, and about our relationships 
with one another, with that world, and with the divine. None of these can be dispensed with. None of that can be said to be a luxury we can deal with eventually. When human beings see the impact of their actions, you get this feedback loop from experiential knowledge and that what I saw happening is that with the rise of modernity, the distances increase and the world becomes abstract labels and numbers. And so, again, there's this vital need for decentralization to ensure that we actually move beyond these abstract labels and numbers to see the flesh and blood, to see the water, to see the animal that we are having an impact on to meet our needs. Now, that doesn't yes. mean every single thing we eat, we will have grown ourselves or every animal, but we start creating human links and more threads of experiential knowledge. It's very good that you stress experiential knowledge. Because once again, I come back to the important relationship between the right and left hemisphere. The left has only ever a map, a diagram, a theory, something very sketchy, a, a mere technical outline of a possibility. And that's fine. It, it does that job beautifully. And, you know, although a map is not the same as the world, of course, and we shouldn't imagine we live in the map instead of the world. We need maps. Maps help us. They help us get about the world and understand it. But the role has always been that the left hemisphere comes up with some idea and it then returns this to the right hemisphere who checks it off against experience. Does this really fit with the, the whole of what I know from all manner of knowledge and experience? Can this form part of a richer whole or does it actually fall down at the first hurdle? But now, if I may put it this way, when the right hemisphere says, okay, let's take a look outside the seminar room and see what's going on in the world outside, it looks out and finds a world that was created by the left hemisphere, full of repellent, rigid, rectilinear surfaces, two-dimensional screens, uh, people deracinated from their country, from their culture, from their nature, um, and walking around like robots, and they say, hmm, well, this mechanistic, reductionist, soulless world does seem to be the world outside. So the left hemisphere trumps the right hemisphere by colonizing for many people. I mustn't exaggerate, there's still plenty of people who don't live in a world like that. But increasingly, we are living in a world like that. And we're encouraged to think that that is reality. So we need badly to get back to seeing that this is missing everything. I mean, all life, all that matters, all that gives value, all that makes our life fulfilled and worth living has been left out of this picture, which is now the picture we're being sold. And we're being, it's, it reminds me of the first settlers in America who swapped treasures from native people for tawdry goods, you know, for a few baubles and bangles and gewgaws. So that is where we're at. We, we're giving away our birthright. We're giving away what is most important for a handful of trash that technological capitalism will give to us in exchange. Wake up. If we could see 
how narrow our way of thinking is now and see there is a more beautiful, more productive, more creative, more imaginative, richer, more complex way of thinking, then good would start to flow. I can't necessarily specify precisely the steps, but that's never going to be the case. It's like, you know, if you want to be a spiritually um, growing individual, it's not that you must do certain things every day. It's that you must begin to examine your life, to think, to change, to reflect. And then the steps that are important will come out of it. So I think we can tackle it from top and bottom, and we can tackle it from side to side by people being addressed as far as their whole philosophy, their, their, their heart and minds are concerned, about their local actions and about their global actions. So if there's a plan, that's, it's going to have some shape like that, I think. See, and God help us if we don't have a plan. We see, we, you know, we're in our work, we recommend the first step to be reconnect. The second step is rethink. And, and that is precisely what you were saying. We're saying exactly that. I think it is. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Without the rethinking, then the next steps, you know, won't, they won't flow. And the rethink that we're oh. talking about is precisely to understand that how we evolved as human beings was deeply connected to others and to the living world, and that we've gone off track. I mean, we call what's been happening evolutionary. No, we're now threatening to go extinct. It's certainly not evolutionary. Mm -hmm. If we want to get back on track with evolution, where yes, everything did change as we mingled with and deeper dialogue with life, things did evolve and change. Mm -hmm. We want to get back on track. We need to get back into that messy soup of being part of life and being embodied, being not just this left brain on a stick, but being whole. And and I think, yeah, so I I just I I think that our work, by the way, also actually one other thing I would like, I know I must let you go, it's so long, but I just also wanted to say how, how when I discovered Goethe when I was about 20. I was so, I felt so, uh, I used to even dream about having conversations with him. <laughs> and I was so happy to have met that more holistic way of thinking. And then when I went out to Ladakh, I did feel that Buddhism, again, was now essentially saying, I believe what, what you are saying. I would love to know to what extent you've explored it, because it so reminds me, you know, almost everything that you've said uh, reminds me of the basic Buddhist teachings of, you know, Nagarjuna, you know, saying, you know, if you think that things exist as separate entities, you're stupid as a cow. If you think that they're all one, you're stupid as a cow. It's this very sophisticated philosophy and however, I have not always been so impressed with um, the way that Buddhism has been interpreted in the West. And so I wonder, have you explored, have you explored Buddhism yourself? Yes, I have. Um, and from an early age, both Buddhism and Taoism were very oh. important to me from my late teens shortly after I discovered Heraclitus, who in many ways 
has things to say that are consonant with the traditions of Taoism and Buddhism. In my book, I use three paths to try and home in on what we can call reality, or at least more real, more truthful than any alternative we know. And they are neuroscience about the way we think and work, physics about the broader universe, and philosophy, the, the, the route whereby we think about what we're finding and, and develop some idea of what it is we're encountering. So those three routes, neuroscience, physics and philosophy, are not at war with one another. In fact, what was wonderful was to find that they're all leading to the same picture of reality and that that picture of reality is one that was already known in all the great traditions of the other parts of the world, of the East, um, of China, of Japan, of India, and so on, of many indigenous people in the world, and strikingly of some of the native people of, of North America. So in the book, I actually refer to these, this coming together of these strands, which is so clear. And, and one of the extraordinary things is that so many cultures have a, a story of two figures. It might be an emperor and a general, or it might be two brothers, or it might be whatever, the, these two forces. And one of them is wiser than the other. And one of them needs to have the control over the other. But the one that knows less is peremptory, arrogant, thinks it knows best, and threatens to destroy everything. So that image, which is from introspection on the human mind, is already present to people intuitively. And all I've been able to do is to show the science that illustrates this precisely. So we now have all the great wisdom traditions of the world, neuroscience, philosophy, and physics, all leading to a point of view about the world, which is completely the opposite of the one that we're being sold and uh, is being pushed down our throats uh, all over the world now. So we have work to do, and I hope that those who are listening or, or watching will take it away from here and do whatever they feel they can to further, um, well, our future. It is our future, whether we have one, in fact. Ian, love you so much. I'm so grateful for what you're doing. Please stay healthy. And, and thank you. And, and you too, oh. Helena. It, it, it's, it's so wonderful to feel that we can sort of stand shoulder to shoulder on these things. Thank you very, very much. Bye. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to this podcast, follow us on social media, and join our mailing list at localfutures.org. For a glimpse into an indigenous culture where left and right brain were more harmoniously balanced, check out Ancient Futures Learning from the Dark by Helena Norberg Hodge. Ancient Futures is an experiential account of life in a pre-industrial culture high on the Tibetan plateau, and of the drastic cultural and psychological changes that came about through so-called development. You can find the original book, the film of the same name, and the recently released audiobook at localfutures.org. 
you can also explore Ian's work at channelmcgilchrist.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to the Local Futures Podcast.